Hello, hello. Um, hi, I'm Claire Sawyer. I'm the programmer here at Adelaide Writers Week for Younger Readers. And um, it's great to have you join us for this panel that we're doing. I am absolutely delighted to have these fabulous authors with us today. But before we start their session, which as you can see is... Oh, no. We've still got the little quirks, is the New Realities um, session. I'd like to just do a little bit of housekeeping, if I may. Firstly, could you please turn your phones to silent? And if you are tweeting or Instagramming, the hashtag is hash ADLWW. We'd also ask you to support our authors and the Adelaide Writers Week by purchasing books in the book tent. There will be a book signing at the end of the session for authors appearing here in person. Um, also, just finally, please be COVID safe and follow the messaging around um, the festival and on the screens. Thank you. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our three authors. And we'll kick off with um, James Bradley. James is the author of five novels, Ghost Species, The Rack, The Deep Field, The Resurrectionist and Clade, and a book of poetry, Paper Nautilus. Did I say that correctly? <laughs> His books have won or been shortlisted for a number of major Australian and international literary awards and have been widely translated. Next to James, we have Jess Scully. Jess Scully is an advocate for the creative economy and the role of cities in a fair future. She's the Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney. Previously, Jess curated projects including Vivid Ideas and TEDx Sydney, worked as a public art curator policy advisor and magazine editor. Glimpses of Utopia is her first book. It's a non-fiction work. That's James's book there. I yes, yes. <laughs> and so we have with them well-known Adelaide author Sean Williams, who was born in the dry flatlands of South Australia where he still lives with his wife and family. <laughs> he is the author of over 40 novels and 120 published short stories for children and adults. Sean's latest novel, Impossible Music, came out in July 2019. So I hand over to the three of you and uh, enjoy this session on new realities. Thank you, Claire. Ooh. Thanks, Claire. And thanks, both of you, for joining us. I'd like to acknowledge the Ghana people uh, and uh, that they are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present and to come. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land and we acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. I also would like to acknowledge any members of other communities who might be here as well uh, beyond the, the Ghana people. Uh, so thank you all for coming on this warm day. Um, I was thinking about this session because I'm pretty positive we'll be talking about climate change at some point. I'm really glad it's not like 46 degrees today because I think it'd be a pretty gloomy conversation or just the three of us talking to an empty tent, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> that would be part of the problem. Uh, but it's a little bit cooler today, so maybe we'll be a bit more optimistic in our conversations. And I think we're having um, listened to James's talk yesterday, which was pretty gloomy, really. <laughs> James is not a naturally gloomy person, but it is, it is kind of a gloomy topic. The, the, the pitch for this session is reasons to be cheerful, I guess, those who remember that old song from the 80s. 80s? Short session. 
Yes, short session. No, no. There are reasons to be cheerful. And uh, uh, you don't write a book called Glimpses of Utopia without believing that there are reasons to be cheerful. Um, why, why are we on this panel? What We must think there are reasons to be cheerful. Are we natural optimists? Or do we look at the world around us and think it's not all disastrous? I think humans are natural optimists, right? Like I think we we wake up and we go, yeah, I can take this day on. And we sort of muddle through and we find a way and, and people are resilient and creative and collaborative by nature. I think we're, we're a social species that works together to solve problems and to leave things better, I hope, for the next generation. I think that's our natural instinct. That's human nature. And so... I know that there's a lot of bad news and there's a lot to be fearful of and to be anxious about. But I also, I, I feel really privileged because I get to meet people every day who are making their part of the world better or they're making their community feel more connected or safer or they're doing things that are creative or inspiring. Or, you know, they're, they're finding ways to solve problems. So I, I felt this real privilege of being able to meet all those people. And then I would meet young people in particular who were just kind of getting all of this dystopian fiction and it was all Hunger Games and Walking Dead and, you know, the future looked pretty gloomy. And I thought, actually, there are good stories that people need to hear as well. And, and I thought I might gather them in one place. Yeah, fantastic. James, what's your approach to the... Because, I don't know, if you're anything like me, I flip-flop between we're all going to die and we're all going to be living in an utopian paradise, you know, <laughs> within 50 years. Do you, do you experience the same kind of...? Uh, a bit, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the part of the issue there is the sense that there's a... that it's one or the other. You know, it's probably both and neither, if that makes sense. I mean, the, the, this kind of sense that there is a... A kind of unitary outcome is part of the part of the problem, and it's actually a way of shutting down how we think about it. But I'd kind of say much of what Jess just said, but I'd also say that I think that a kind of positive outlook, not, not to have that positive outlook, is a kind of abdication of responsibility. You know, I mean, you have, you know, particularly when you look at the kind of problems in the world today, like not, like refusing to take them on, refusing to kind of engage with the future, refusing to try and see a way through is actually a kind of abdication of responsibility to that future. And particularly, you know, I've got kids, you know, and there's a level at which kids put a kind of floor on your despair. Like if you've got kids, you actually can't kind of roll around going, oh, we're all going to die because you can't, you know. And so, I mean, there is a level at which I think, yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I think the challenges we face are really massive. I think there's a whole series of things that are going to be very, very difficult to deal with. I think the human costs of a lot of that are going to be very high. Um, but simultaneously, that doesn't mean that there aren't outcomes where we get through it. And it doesn't... And in a sense, pretending there isn't is a way of giving... That, that the kind of giving up seems to me to be just unacceptable. What's that um, sort of motivational speak thing? You know, a, a problem is just an opportunity with an unhappy face or something. I don't know. I, I don't write those books or even read them. But uh, yeah, change is an opportunity for uh, everyone, really, isn't it, to do incredible things? I think so. Because you know what? 
we keep being told that everything's getting worse, right? It's getting hotter and it's getting riskier and the, the sea level's coming up. Yeah, but also we're living in a time in history where people are living longer than they've ever lived before. Fewer women are dying in childbirth. More people can read and write. More people are, are coming out of poverty all the time. And we're not living in the best possible world right now. Like we're having a pretty good time. Like all of us who get to sit in a lovely writer's tent on a Sunday, like we're, we're doing really well. But a lot of people around the world aren't, aren't being able to achieve their full potential. They're not able to access all the opportunity that's open to them. And in part, that's because we have an economic system that is privileging the like total luxury and, and great outcomes for a really tiny group of people at the expense of everyone else. Like during the pandemic, what was it? There were billionaires, the wealth of billionaires globally went up by $3 trillion. Like crazy. While most people actually lost a lot and suffered and their their quality of life went down. So we're not, we're basically just talking about correcting an imbalance and improving outcomes for most people. So I think it's important to remember that Yes, we're facing really big challenges, but things could be better for everyone and we have a lot of the tools that we need to get there. How, d how do we take the money back from the trillionaires, who, or the billionaires who, who talk very confidently about making money, but really they're not making money, they're taking it from everybody else. So how do we take it back? Is it, is it pitchfork time? I mean, I'm, I'm all in favour of pitchforks. I've bought shares in uh, several pitchfork companies, uh, but uh, revolutions usually don't end well. No, Do but they? evolutions end well. And, and you know, um, this is something that's happened throughout history where, you know, the, there's, a, there's an era called the Gilded Age, which people talk about, which was kind of like the, the end of the, the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, where you had these, these plutocrats, these people in the US in particular, who had, were, were kind of doing a lot of dodgy deals and they built the railways and they kicked everyone out of their deals and they, they basically were just hoarding money. You, you know them because a lot of the big grants that you still hear about are named after them, Carnegie, Rockefeller, those kinds of families, right? And society intervened using politics and said, no, there have got to be rules. And up until the 70s, there was something like a 90% tax on the richest people. Um, and it meant that they had to contribute back to society. And we can use the tools of, this is very exciting, guys, we can use tax uh, to, to solve some of these problems. Oh, no, I went straight to tax. Oh, no, I'm coming back, I promise. Politics, the tax, and economic reform, and there are a whole bunch of things. We've already got the solutions, and a lot of this stuff is actually we can learn from history and people have done this before. Save me from talking about tax. <laughs> well, well, James... Well, but, I mean, I'd say, look, I'd say something similar, which is that, you know, we're so kind of trapped in the system that we're in. Like, it's hard to see other versions of it. And people, you know, we were talking about this beforehand, but, but you know, it's not just about kind of reforming tax systems. I mean, billionaires exist because we've put policy settings in place that allow billionaires to exist. You know, that those things are not natural. They can be changed. And they've actually been, you know, they were quite different even 30 or 40 years ago. But, I mean, in somewhere like Australia, I and mean, people look around and go, what do we do about kind of, you know, the fact that our government won't engage with questions of climate? You know, and it, obviously big question, lots of stuff that's really hard, you know, but fundamentally in Australia that's because there's been a capture of our government by, and there's a lot of literature around this, uh, you know, there's a kind of process of capture of government by the fossil fuel industry and small economies, especially small extractive economies, 
like ours, are extremely susceptible to capture by small groups in society. It transfers wealth upwards, it consolidates wealth in a small group of people, it's fundamentally anti-democratic. But, you know, the way you deal with it is, first of all, with things like tax structures, but also with things like breaking down the political structures that allow them to own the government, get rid of political donations, have real-time, you know, if you're going to have political donations, have real-time... Uh, yeah, disclosures of that. You know, deal with the fact that lobbyists are in and out of the offices of these people all the time, uh, of our politicians all the time. That stuff's actually really easy. It's low-hanging fruit. Get an ICAC at a federal level. Put some of these bastards in jail. Like, you know, like, that would seem to me to be a really good outcome, you know. But, <laughs> but it is, but, you know, that stuff's not hard. Do you know what I mean? That's actually kind of highly achievable political reform that is within our grasp that would make a fundamental difference to the way our economy is being run and to the way our society is being run. You know, so I mean, it is that thing where, you know, you talk about tax as well, but I mean, it, this is not impossible stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, finding a way to kind of redistribute wealth and redistribute power, particularly through society, is one of the ways through this thing. It doesn't need to go to pitchforks. We don't have to go straight to pitchforks, do we? No. There are all sorts of ways in between. First we go to the ballot box and then also you have like placards and things. No, there's, there's plenty of things you can do. And, you know, on that, this, this point about the capture of our politics by fossil fuels is such an important point. And there's this movement in the US called the Sunrise Movement. Has anyone heard of the Sunrise Movement? Anyone? Oh, yeah. You mean global communism? <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite. So the Sunrise Movement is a bunch of young kids, right? They're like... 15, 16, 17 years old, they totally changed the political conversation in the lead up to the US election that just happened, right? Here's what they did. They went and stood outside the offices of every person who was standing for election with a giant novelty-sized check. And on the check they wrote how much money that person had received from fossil fuel donors, from the gas lobby, the, the pet, you know, oil lobby, all the rest of it. And they shamed those people into signing a no fossil fuel donation pledge. And they got more than 2,000 aspiring politicians or current politicians to vow that they would never accept donations from fossil fuel donors. Everyone who stood for election on the democratic side of politics signed that. That's transformative. You know, they were able to get Joe Biden, who wasn't the most progressive environmentally, the most progressive candidate. They got him to move all the way over closer to where they were. And one of their key leaders is now um, on, on one of Joe Biden's um, advisory panels when it comes to climate policy. So young people have the, the potential to make huge change in this area. Yeah, and look, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about one of the other groups, which is Extinction Rebellion, you know, and, it, I, you know, there are things I, I would probably make some criticisms of XR in some ways, but I also think that most of the criticisms of them is placed because what they've actually got is a kind of strategy for emergency. And so they say, what we're going to do is just get in the way till people have to do with something. And it is that thing where people go, oh, this makes people hate the climate movement. It hate, you know, when they stop the traffic, it makes them hate everyone. But that may be true, but what it's also done is put that conversation at the centre of the political discourse. And, you know, to go back 30 years, I think you could make a lot of criticisms of Peter, the, the animal rights people. Simultaneously, fur is now essentially unacceptable. You know, and that, that bunch of weirdo activists have completely changed our assumptions around, you know, one of the really big luxury goods in our society. You know, so I mean, it is that thing where, you know, 
this kind of complaint that people are being noisy or difficult or embarrassing or they're turning people against the movement, you know, like, the, I actually don't think it's true. I mean, you look at XR and they've actually got a, a workable strategy. strategy for this. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, you talk about revolution and people worry about revolution being a violent thing. I mean, we live in a system which is filled with violence at the moment. It's just the violence isn't brought to bear on us. It's brought to bear on people in other places. It's brought to bear on poorer people. It's brought to bear on animals. It's brought to bear on all of these other beings. You know, so I mean, we live in a system which is founded on violence. You know, the violence is absolutely intrinsic to it and it's highly racialized. And, you know, we kind of go, oh no, revolution, that might be violent, but the system is already unbelievably violent. You know, so it's just a hidden violence that we don't see. And I think the, the privileged people who... Well, what's that great Zappa line, Frank Zappa line? Um, Without deviation from the norm, progress is not possible. And we need to deviate from what we've come to accept as the norm. Uh, but the people who are privileged at the moment will perceive that as a painful change. And, uh, you know, I say go for it. You know, as a, a white bloke in Australia, I think it'd be about time my particular political and social class suffered a, a bit more pain than we normally do. <laughs> Let me reframe that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, Actually, we would live a better life. Like, we're not going to... like Some of the things that we perceive as luxuries or essential to our way of life right now, they're sort of like, you know, what are they, like bread and circuses. They're kind of like stuff to distract us from the fact that we have to work 50 hours a week and sit two hours in traffic to go work for a job that doesn't really fulfill us so that we can pay for a mortgage that's overinflated. Sorry, kids, <laughs> this is exciting again. But anyway, uh, the thing is, actually, we could live a lifestyle that is more fulfilling and purpose-driven and connected to each other and emotionally, um, you know, purposeful and fulfilling than, than what we've got right now. Like, this isn't as good as it gets. It's pretty nice. Like, sitting here in this tent is pretty nice. But imagine if we didn't have to work such long hours. Imagine if we didn't have to pay so much to, for the places that we lived. If we could redesign the way that we do land value, for example, and, and housing in Australia, which is we have some of the most expensive, poor quality housing in the whole world. We have an energy poverty in Australia. We're one of the few places in the world where our energy is so expensive and it doesn't need to be because we're reliant. Well, you guys are doing okay over here, but, but you know, we're generally in Australia really reliant on, on really dirty energy and it's expensive in the long term. So actually what I want people to imagine is we don't even know the benefits that we might enjoy if we changed some of the things that we value and the way that our society operates. But we have yeah. to go back to kind of questioning these kind of core fundamentals. That's absolutely right. One of the most fascinating things to come out of COVID as a science fiction writer and futurist is watching what seemed distant possibilities like four-day working weeks and universal basic incomes and all that kind of stuff coming totally. more and more clearly into view. If we had both of those things, that would transform society. Totally. And yeah. I don't know, like for a second, childcare was free. Does anyone remember that? <laughs> oh, my God. Guess what? In other parts of the world, childcare is free and it's high quality and it's available to everyone. In, in Norway, it's available 24 hours a day. Like, this isn't science fiction. Sorry, guys, it's not science fiction. It's just not true here yet. And, and so actually what I was trying to do with my book is to like borrow all these things that have happened in history or in other parts of the world and say, actually, you know, the future, the future is, you know, here is just not evenly distributed. You know that line? 
And so actually there are places we can learn from all over the world where we can improve our quality of lives, share some of the costs that we have in running a society more fairly um, and get better environmental and social outcomes as well. I mean, what you also see though, I think, is that those changes from COVID have happened because of a crisis. Yes. And, you know, the reality is with the climate stuff, we actually don't have a choice. We have to change. You know, if we don't change, we're done. You know, and so you have a kind of crisis pushing us towards a series of changes. And, and you know, the question is how effectively and how rapidly we respond to that crisis. And it's a kind of slow crisis, mm. but it's a crisis nonetheless. You know, and there is no way out of it without changes. You know, and, and, and so you can kind of see the way that crisis kind of engenders change. You can see the way that societies alter, which goes back to that idea of why would you be positive? And you're positive because at the end of the day, we're going to have to change. There's no... No other choice is that great line of Greta Thunberg's, which is, you know, change is coming, you know, whether you want it or not. You know, it's like the question is just what it's going to look like, you know. And, and I think as well it's, it's having alternatives to throw at the crisis. Like there's this famous line that, that conservatives or, you know, people who, who are happy for things to continue as they are, um, which is, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Neither should people who want a positive future. We should say, okay... This is what we'd like instead, actually. We'd actually like you to fund childcare and elder care, aged care better, so that we get better outcomes, people are spending less out of their own pocket, society is paying for a better outcome. Actually, rather than investing in like gas exploration and mining and, and subsidising that as part of our recovery, what if we invested in the fossil fuel industry? Uh, sorry. Oh, my God. Oh, that's a Freudian slip. Oh. Oops, the other one. The renewables industry. Oi. They got to me too, Sean. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, you know, the renewables industry and, and, you know, and what if we invested in energy efficiency moves and, and building houses better in Australia so that we had better energy efficiency and... You know, these things stimulate the economy and they're part of the recovery as well. We just have to be informed and organised as a society to say there are alternatives and we, we can ask for them. But it's okay because our government used the budget after COVID as an excuse to pauperise us for a generation in order to fund a massive transfer of wealth up the chain. I mean, it's kind of extraordinary. And, and to put money into fossil fuels. I mean, it's the most extraordinarily regressive yeah. budget, yeah. you know, but also that, you know, all of the things that we should have done, which were around investing in social housing, about trying to, you know, we're going to have to spend all of this money, let's spend it on putting in place the infrastructure that we know we've got to build, yeah. that we're going to have to build within 10 years, you know. But no, we didn't do that. We've just moved money up the chain. But it's not over yet. It's not over yet because, like, actually this is going to be a really long recovery because actually it's going to be a really long crisis. So we've still got time to demand better because they're going to try what they're going to try and it's not going to work. It's just, they're going to have to do something else anyway. So it's about having alternatives to throw down the hallway. But, you know, <laughs> what I think we need to do is, is basically change the way we do politics because the way we do politics right now is just completely broken, right? Like having team A and team B and blue and red and whatever just like duking it out, it, it doesn't work. And so there are, there are some other systems that they have in other parts of the world and there's this one which is called um, deliberative democracy, and it's basically, you guys had a version of it here in SA um, around um, the nuclear waste, 
a couple of years ago. Um, and it's where you get a truly representative group of citizens, people who by age, gender, location and education and wealth really represent society. And then you put them in a room, you pay them for their time, you give them access to all the experts and the information. And then you ask ordinary people to come up with policy solutions. And they've just done this in France last year. And it was overwhelming, the response that citizens had when they had all the information. They demanded that the government de develop a green recovery from COVID. And they put forward 179 recommendations to French Parliament, including changing the French constitution to embed protection of the environment and the crime, create the crime of ecocide in their constitution. So citizens can do this stuff. We just have to demand different systems that are going to get us that kind of change. And I think um, the average person is so much better informed than previous generations. It's, it's again, I flip-flop between we have this, in, this amazingly informed populace who have access to the world's knowledge at their fingertips, in, in their pockets, in their phones, uh, which is an, an amazing reason to feel cheerful. Uh, but on the other hand, there's Facebook and Murdoch <laughs> and that come with the phones that yeah. seem to rob a lot of people of that power or self-will how do you how do you how do we deal with these these massive monopolies that are seem to be designed inadvertently or deliberately to control the population to stop them demanding what's best for them but that's one of the things that's interesting at the moment isn't it? i mean you've seen over the last two or three years the beginning of a kind of pushback by governments around the world against those tech giants and you know they are incredibly powerful and you know ham-fisted as it was that's kind of what the mess with facebook here in australia has been about um, you know, whatever you think of it, it was actually about trying to push back at one level against that kind of consolidation of consolidation of power. But I mean, what we have to do is to recognise that these people need to be regulated. They need to be taxed. They need to be regulated. You know, and but I mean, you know, Facebook and Google transfer six billion dollars out of the Australian economy every year that they don't pay tax on. It goes to their tax havens overseas. They pay tax on about one billion dollars. So it's about six that goes away. We don't get anything back from that. They take all of our advertising money and it just goes offshore. You know, so, you know, we could deal with that. I mean, there's ways that governments can do stuff about having kind of different tax structures that kind of work with each other to make these companies pay tax in the countries that they're operating in. But I mean, also you can just regulate them. I mean, they and they can engage in regulation. You know, what's the single best thing that's happened in the last two months? They took Donald Trump off Twitter. Yeah. You know, why didn't they do it five years ago? But I mean, what you can suddenly see is they have years of them going, we can't do anything about this. We can't do anything about the rise of kind of right wing content. We can't do anything about any of that. Yeah, you can. You can just take them off. And there's, a, there's actually, this, I'll stop in a sec, there's a <laughs> there is a fascinating study which they did in the US, which was about what happens if you take, they basically did a kind of nodal study of kind of the spread of right-wing extremism on social networks. And they said if what you do is you take off the big figures, so the Trumps, you know, the, 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 those kinds of figures, yeah, Milo, all of those kinds, but you, you take off the ones who are the kind of big ones, it doesn't just break the networks, it brings the level of kind of attack and kind of stuff down across the board, which was really, really interesting. Because, you know, there's this argument that if you, the argument's always been that if what you do is you get rid of these people, then they just go somewhere else and it starts again and it goes down into the in things. And it, there's probably some truth to that. But what we can also see with these studies is if you take the Trumps off Twitter, it just takes the tone of the place down and people, s 
you know, it, it, it's a really interesting study because it, you know, it kind of pushes back against that standard line about why there's no point trying to regulate this kind of speech. And I think what we've seen over the last five years is we actually have to work out how to regulate this kind of speech because it's mm. dangerous. It's not just that it's uncomfortable or offensive or anything like that. It's, it's actively dangerous. You know, mm. people died in that attack on the Capitol. You know, like it's actively dangerous. And so we have to work out how to deal with it. You know, and I'm speaking as someone who is broadly probably on the free speech side of a lot of these arguments, I, you know, you, I, I still say you, we've got to find ways of regulating and managing this kind of speech. Yeah. Agreed. If I can add in, I'm so glad you talked about tax. That's great. <laughs> um, so we're both down there now. So, look, actually, all of this stuff, right, the, the internet essentially, but a lot of this radical disruptive technology that is, you know, created by these thought leaders, you know, Elon and Bill and the other guy, Steve, and, you know, actually they're all just standing on public shoulders. Like all of them have benefited from the research and development that society has invested in science, in universities. Um, almost all of this stuff is publicly funded. And we actually have to recoup some of that public investment. And there's an economist named Mariana Mazzucato who has done a lot of work on this front. And she basically looked at everything inside an iPhone that makes it smart. And every single thing that makes an iPhone work has come about because of public investment. Not because Steve was a genius necessarily, because he pulled it all together and commercialized it. So how do we recoup some of that investment? And in the past, people thought we could achieve it all through tax and through payroll tax and things like that. But they're all very clever at, you know, having the Cayman Islands, Bahamas, Dutch, Irish office. And, um, and so they dodge tax that way. And we do need to deal with, with global taxation as an issue. But we need to start recouping the investment from this, this public, um, public financing of innovation. And there's a really good example that we can point to. So do you remember Nokia? Anyone remember Nokia, right? So for kids, Nokia was the first phone that everybody had, right? You used to play, have one game on it called Snake and that was it. But everyone thought it was really cool. We had this one phone and everybody used to had the phone. So they it were- It was the so cool. It was so it was cool. So it was the biggest company in the world for a while. And turns out Nokia had received some money from the government. So the government got shares in Nokia, which they sold at a good time, by the way, before the other phones came along. And then the Finnish government, because Nokia is a Finnish company, took that money and they put it into this thing called Citra, which is basically a think tank to help Finland devise a way towards a more sustainable, inclusive future. And this think tank spends money going around the country, bringing people together to help design solutions. It funds research. It does a whole lot of stuff to help Finland have a more sustainable future. We could do that too. Um, and there are some great examples of other companies where there have been opportunities to do that. But it's also about labour conditions. I mean, I, I'm going to steal the words of Claire O'Neill, who's a Labour MP here, but I mean, she said the other day, we spent, for 100, we spent 100 years fighting for a minimum wage and basic job conditions. Just because someone invents an app doesn't mean that goes away, you know. And we actually need to do that stuff about saying all these people are in kind of, you know, we need to reassert the kind of labour rights of people in all of that kind of insecure work. I mean, you shouldn't... I mean, in Sydney, there's guys riding food everywhere, getting knocked off their bikes, they're being paid nothing. You know, they've got no sick leave, they've got no medical insurance. It's appalling. You know, and these companies are then, as I said before, hoovering money offshore in order to do this. So we're all giving money to guys in Silicon Valley to do terrible things to people working in Australia. You know, and 
that's fixable. It's actually quite easily fixable. You bring in some laws to stop them doing it. You know. And actually those people are, are unionising in other parts of the world as well. So we're kind of like having a lot of battles that we had 100 years ago. They're happening again. So how do we learn from what happened 100 years ago and shortcut some of those things as well? That's where books like Jess's excellent book will come in handy. So hurrah. And I think one thing that uh, I have to remind myself of constantly is that... Uh, Nothing ever really goes as planned. I mean, you can set excellent conditions up to say, well, if we try all these things, taxation, regulation, uh, it should work. But there's this sort of one factor that is uncontrollable, and that is that is luck. You know, we we if we're incredibly unlucky, nothing we do will make a difference, and we're all doomed. But that could happen if a nearby star uh, is a super, is, it goes supernova, and we get hit by a blast of radiation, and we'll all just die. But that's that would be really bad luck. But there's nothing we can do about that. But we could also, the flip side of that is we could get really lucky. You know, we, we, we could end up, because of the changes we introduce now, because of the crisis we're experiencing now and the crisis to come, we could end up in a, in a better place. We could end up like in that techno future that I read about when I was a, a young boy reading science fiction. We could be, we could finally have flying cars. <laughs> You know, in, in 50 years, or our grandkids or our kids, I probably won't be around long enough for a flying car, which is probably safer for everybody else if I never get behind the wheel of one. But um, what, what, would, what would be your most optimistic vision of the future? What would that look like? Flying cars, prosperity for all? No, for me, um, it's, it's really, really simple. Um, it's basically just a future and where everyone feels included. Just that's, that's it. So if we can just figure out how to do that, um, that would be, I think, my ultimate idea of the future. All that stuff, like, I don't know, we thought we'd have a flying car by now. <laughs> so you can't really predict that. But, but I do think it's just about how people feel and, and people feeling like their voices matter and that they're heard and they can achieve on their potential. Is it utopian to think that everybody should be heard? Like, what about serial killers? What about racists? What about... I think if, if you hear from most people that balances out yeah, actually there's very few you know really truly terrible people mm. James, what there's not all that many serial killers on twitter is there i think <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs> not advertising it i don't think <laughs> <laughs> although you do get stories on reddit there, there are instagram oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here's my latest kill <laughs> <laughs> a terrible joke i shouldn't make it sorry Guys. Uh, James, do you have a vision of the future for your your children? I mean, or is it the vision? So James's wonderful book from a few years ago called Clade is an account of what it might feel like to go through a, a steadily worsening climate crisis, and it ends on a absolutely beautiful, positive note. Is and people who've read that book will know what I'm talking about. Those who haven't read the book should rush out and read it. But is, is Clearly. that yeah? <laughs> is that cl is that the kind of future you imagine for your children or grandchildren? Um, one that's very alien to ours. That one that's well, I don't think there's any question that it will be alien in lots of ways. I mean, in some ways it won't be alien, but I think a lot of things will have to be different. I think a future where, I mean, as Jess says, where everyone feels included is incredibly important. But I mean, also think that the only way we build a future that works is by building a future that's kind of inclusive fairer, more equal, because I mean the only way we can make the kind of economy work in a sustainable way is by doing that, you know, I mean it's, it's so I mean, it's one of those weird things where in order to save the world we have to build a better world like it's this kind of weird thing where by doing the things that will make the world better we'll actually save the world 
which is which is kind of a fascinating position to be. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the end of Clay is very much about trying to. It's about trying to create a longer future and about saying there is always space for change because it seemed to me, it certainly seemed to me then, perhaps a bit less so now, seven or eight years later, but it, it seemed to me that a lot of people felt like there was no possibility of change and it seemed to me about kind of finding a way of reinvesting people with the idea that there's always possibility. You know, there's always tomorrow. You can always get up tomorrow and try and do it better. I mean, and, and, and I'd say that about a lot of the climate stuff. I mean, that kind of sense that people want to go, it's just too hard, we should stop. You know, three degrees is better than four, 2.5 is better than three, two is better than 2.5. You know, like every little bit we can do to make it better matters. You know, every bit that we can save matters. I mean, you know, we're, I mean, yeah, that'd be really depressing, but you know, we're on track for most of the coral reefs probably to be gone by the end of the decade. You know, it's a very short kind of window but there are the ones we can save. We should try and save the ones we can save. You know, like it's that, you know, we, that's what we need to be aiming at. Like what's the, th there's a kind of simultaneous process of making the world better and a kind of triage where you're trying to save what you can of what we've got. So, yeah, I mean, and in a weird kind of way, yeah. So I, I, I think the positive future is one, I think our visions of utopia have perhaps scaled back a little bit at this point <laughs> and a survivable future looks like a good one, but I do actually think to be survivable, it has to be better. Aim higher, boys. No, no, no. I know it's true. I think you're absolutely right, James. But it's, but I do think we can't imagine. You know, there's this famous saying: it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And and basically, do you know what? Like, we could have a fairer system. We could have a better quality of life. We could have a, a more livable planet. But, yeah, it is true. The scale of the climate crisis is extraordinary and there is this trajectory that we're on. And I don't know environmentally whether our future looks better than, than our past, but, but maybe we'll appreciate it more and we'll learn to live in more harmony, in, you know, in a greater harmony with the places that we're in um, and we'll learn how to adapt to conditions differently. But you're right, we have to build... If, if we build a fairer future for everyone, that takes us so far of the way towards building a... Um, more sustainable planet as well. In but some ways, but, but also, I'm oh, sorry, just really quickly. But I mean, I also think one of the things is about that kind of focusing on the idea there's a solution. There is no solution. Like, and the process of getting there is going to be a process of us kind of trying different things. Some will work better than others. You know, I mean, it will be a patchwork response because that's the nature of human change. It's the nation nature of social change. It's a kind of you know, often it's a you know, two steps forward, one step back. But it's also, you know, there'll be different responses, different places will deal with it differently, some will deal with it better than others, you know. But what we have to hope is that we get to a place where, you know, in a hundred years, we're kind of, we're somewhere that's kind of livable. And one of the things I also think matters is kind of remembering that we're not just talking about the next 50 years, we're talking about the next thousand years, we're talking about the next 2,000 years. And every time you kind of lose sight of you know, when the next 30, which is going to be pretty hairy, starts to look really frightening, it's worth thinking, so where will we be in a thousand years? Because we'll probably still be here, you know, and, and there's something about kind of reinvesting in that idea of the deep future, which helps you see that the near future is survivable, I think. And I think it's really worth bearing in mind, this is wearing my most optimistic utopian hat, that 
we're not just talking about our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids or great-great-great-great-great-great-great. We could personally still be around in a thousand years, you know. And so if we're screwing things up now, then this may come back and bite us in the ass at some point. Pardon my bad language, but... I need a lot more super. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that maybe some, someone in the next 10 or 20 years will realise, hey, you know, maybe I really should start taking this seriously. Maybe Elon Musk will suddenly wake up and go, well... Not much point. Yeah. Look, I mean, also things about the kinds of stories we tell ourselves, you know. So, at the moment, there are a lot of stories about collapse, you know, and mm. because it seems very hard to envision where we go next. I mean, just talked about that Jameson line about, you know, h easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. You know, I would argue that, in fact, you know, it's actually by imagining the end of capitalism that we begin to imagine a better world. But, but there is something about kind of looking to history and... I was talking before about this, but there's a fascinating... So, in the 17th century, there's a little ice age. You know, temperatures around the world dropped by about half a degree. Um, absolute social chaos erupted everywhere. Um, lots of countries in Europe went backwards. You know, the, the Swedes marched across the Straits of Zealand because they froze to attack the Danes. You know, um, Greenland collapsed. I mean, all, you know, huge disasters everywhere because you know crops failed it was it was a catastrophe as that kind of rapid environmental change is the dutch flourished it coincides with the dutch golden age you know so when the rest of the world is unraveling because the climate's changing the dutch are doing incredibly well you know they're making art their empire is growing you know it's amazing and dutch historian recently wrote a book where he was trying to look at why that might have happened and it was really really interesting and he said you know some of it is that they got lucky so um, the winds changed a bit and their ships could move a bit faster, which was great. So a few things like that. Um, it was partly that their cities were kind of, because of the way the country was set up, um, they tended to have more diverse diets. So if the wheat failed, you didn't just immediately starve because there were other things to eat. Um, but what it was actually about was the Dutch innovated. So they built icebreakers. You know, they did a whole lot of technological stuff like that. They invented maritime insurance so that you could underwrite voyages. They developed corporations so that you could share the kind of risk of new developments. And they also had an incredibly flexible political structure, unlike anybody else, because they were a much more democratic and kind of politically flat society than most European societies at the moment. Because they had a kind of proto-capitalism working, which was highly, flex highly flexible, highly adaptable in the way, in the way capitalism is um you know so it's this kind of fascinating counter narrative about saying look by through kind of innovating and being flexible and doing things societies can adapt to things now what his book doesn't talk about is that you know the wealth of their society was being generated by slavery and colonialism and all that kind of thing where they were funneling money in from outside which is kind of important today because we've kind of hit the limits of that system so we have to kind of reconceive how the system works but you know, it's a fantastic counter-narrative. I mean, it's actually kind of saying societies don't just collapse when things get hard. Sometimes they get better. Mm. I bet taxation you know. featured in there somewhere. Totally. <laughs> Claire, how are we doing for time? Have, uh, we're doing uh, well, but we're just wondering if perhaps there might be some questions yes. from the audience. Is it, what would you like to see in the future? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have a, a microphone on... No. What's Can I mean? go... Uh, what I'm going to do is go over and repeat your question, if that works. Can I just get a, a quick round of hands for... Who would like flying cars? <laughs> who would like a universal basic income? Who would like to be able to live for a thousand years? Who would like uh, the Star Trek transporter so you could just zap from place to place? Excellent. That's more than the usual. Okay, sorry. 
for COVID, I've just got a, if you say it to me, then I repeat it. Wow, this is a superb question. Oh, it's a superb question about pacifism. I'm actually going to get you to repeat it because you just said it so beautifully. It just seems silly. Yeah. Uh, so, is pacifism important to have a good and safe society? And do you reckon it's okay that people in power are kind of making the point that kids don't really understand? You need to have weapons for world peace. And is that right? That's a great question. Well, I want to say, yes, I think pacifism is excellent and I think it's terrible when politicians patronise kids and say you've got no chance of understanding and and, uh, they should be held more accountable to the generations that will suffer in the future. But I'm sure there are more nuanced conversations to be had than that. What do you guys think? It's such an important question, you know. Um, I, I agree. I think pacifism is essential for world peace and also for having a sustainable future. I mean, mm. when we think about how much money gets funneled, how much is Australia spending on those submarines? Does anyone remember? And they don't even work. And they don't no. even work. Well, it's, it's propping up the South Australian economy. Oh, sorry, economy. sorry, sorry, sorry. I forgot where it was. You can't say that here. Well, <laughs> sorry. Take They're back. great. They're good. They, they seem good. They seem good. Um, but... Uh, you know, basically, there's all this money that's getting spent on building weapons um, that that isn't being spent on like delivering a future that people for a planet that people can live on. So we have to completely change the priorities of our governments, and the only way that we can do that, I think, is by having more representative. Um, political processes so that we have got young people represented in decision making and I don't see why there's there's no reason why something like a citizen's jury or a climate convention or a citizen's convention process shouldn't include young people. The one that they did in France included the people from 16 to I think 90 Um, and I think it's really important that if we were to encourage governments here to have that process that we would include young people in that process Uh, because there's no reason why young people couldn't have those debates or take on that complex information. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd also say that the one of the ways we avoid getting to a point where there's kind of violence being committed within society, one of the ways we get, you know, end up not having kind of riots and uh, and kind of incredibly violent confrontations is by giving people a say. You know, so I mean, the kind of reinvestment in democracy, the reinvestment in representation, the reinvestment in inclusion is actually a way of getting away from violence. You know, I mean, the way you end up with not having violent protests on the street is by people thinking that things are going okay and that they have a stake in things. So, yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> and, and it's possible as well that we're living through some of the very first climate wars that are happening. Like, it, it, a lot of people have. Um, uh, done some analysis and found that that Syria's conflict, for example, was precipitated or, or sparked by the fact that there was a an ongoing drought that meant a lot of people moved from the country to the cities because they weren't able to work, and you saw a rise of tensions in cities, and it, it has sparked a really big an ongoing war. So, so by solving the climate crisis and addressing that, we will um, prevent a lot of wars in the future. Yeah, yeah. Great line of Naomi Klein's where you look at the the kind of dry line around the Middle East. And what you see is that, you know, 
the armies followed the oil, the drones followed the armies, you know, then the boats follow. Mm. You know, so you have this kind of interconnection of these crises around kind of extractive violence, um, you know, kind of political violence and then refugees, you know, so I mean, it, which then generates different kinds of violence. I mean, they're all kind of interconnected and you do that by trying to deal with the root causes, not by sinking the boats in the Mediterranean. Or sticking the people on them on an island or et cetera, et cetera. And so do we have another question from the audience? I've disinfected the mic. <laughs> what, were you, what are your thoughts on the prison and police systems in Australia? <laughs> um, I, think, uh, I think basically uh, they're really problematic um, and often what we're seeing is like the further traumatisation of people who have been excluded, you know, and, and I think um, alongside political exclusion that, that James was just talking about is economic exclusion and w we live in a system that pushes people out, some people out from day one, right? And they're always fighting against the system. And then the system's sort of currently designed to keep pushing those people out. And, um, and I think we've got to address um, that foundational trauma that a lot of people experience of being on the outer the whole way of being economically excluded and disempowered. Um, that can often lead to people being kind of constantly criminalised throughout their lives. Um, and, and we're seeing worrying trends in the form of, you know, in places like the US are famous for having a kind of prison industrial complex, basically a whole economic system of people who derive a lot of profit and benefit from having prison systems. And we can't see that develop further here. That is such a dangerous system. Uh, so I think we have to be really conscious about the prison system and policing as well. What Jess said. <laughs> <laughs> We throw all the, the tricky political questions to Jess. Now, Jess, I forgot to say, do we need to refer you by your honour or your <laughs> deputy honour? Is it is there a respect? You're not wearing your robes and everything. What is the title? Yeah. It's just it's just deputy Lord Mayor. It's oh. not. I don't have any kind of fancy. You your title. worship? No, but you, I mean today, <laughs> sure. <laughs> your sparkliness. Yeah, sparkliness. Is, yeah, sparkliness. Oh, awesome. That's fantastic. Could you get that written into the the Sydney <laughs> Council Code? I can work on it. I can work on it. Because I'd love to see an old white guy. <laughs> Take over from you and then have to be addressed as your sparkliness. Your sparkliness. I, I used to work for a judge and the only way you could address him at work was judge or your honour. <laughs> he didn't have a name. <laughs> well, I guess that's an interesting you know, way to approach a role like that, to depersonalise them so yeah. they become the function, but it, it also removes them from personal responsibility, which is a problem we're seeing now with corporations and et cetera, et cetera, and police in America where they have the law where, you know, if you... You can't be prosecuted. What's it? Um, uh, you can't be charged with a crime that's committed during the course of your really? job or something. There's some there's some immunity from prosecution. Oh God! It's just very strange. Yeah. Anyway, off topic. That Let's is not such a huge here. topic, though. It like is. it's such an important and huge topic. And you know the crisis that uh, that was sparked, you know, by the COVID crisis, and then you know the constant um, uh, oppression of, of people of colour in the US has led to conversations about defunding the police, which are really important conversations. But because they're not they're not conversations about cutting funding to police and you know not spending that money on something else. It's saying police are being asked to do things that are well beyond their their job description. 
you know, and what if that money went into education and community support and to mental health services instead? Um, and so it's such an important conversation. But it's a whole other topic, Claire. You're going to have to do another yeah, session. Uh, <laughs> next year, next yeah, year. Yeah. Um, I think we've probably only got time for one more question. Is there another question in the audience? Okay. We'll be over there. What about no more animal experimentation? Who would like to see that? Oh, yeah. Yep. I've, I've got a much harder question. It's about from being from the 70s. Now, the way you speak is a little bit about the government can fix it. You know, we need fix it, government fix it. So I guess what's so exciting for my generation now is to see the school kids. So I want to ask you about the school kids. Can they, you know, how do we help them? What do we do? Missed the end of that, sorry. So how do we help them and what do we do? So helping school kids um, yeah. action change. Yeah, so, uh, well, I was going to say just quickly on the first bit about saying government can fix it. I don't know that's quite what I was saying. I mean, what I was saying is that if, you know, these problems actually require kind of government to be engaged with it, like you can't deal with the climate crisis without government legislation, without all of that kind of thing. So what we need is a kind of re-engagement of citizens with that process and a kind of pushing of government to do things which is slightly different from a kind of abdication of responsibility of government. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the stuff with the kids is amazing, you know, and, and incredibly important. And what, you know, what I hope will happen is a kind of recognition, a number of those lessons that come from the 70s about how do you turn public will for change, how do you actually transfer that into a process where it becomes legislative change, where it becomes policy change, where it becomes something, because that, that part of the process is really, really difficult. And I would have said a number of the social movements over the last few years seem to me to have been really good at generating en energy online, really good at generating energy in the streets. But when it comes to sitting down and going, you know, what are the structures we're going to put in place to stop this happening? There seems to be a breakdown of that kind of process. Like somehow government is not responding to that and people are not, not dealing with them as effectively. So, I mean, I think that that's working out how to do that seems to me to be incredibly important. I mean, I, I think your, your point about government is, um, is an important one, but I think what, what I'd like to say is that politics is just a tool of social decision making. It's a way that we decide collectively what our priorities and values are and how we'd like our commonwealth to be directed. Um, and so I think politics and government is important because as individuals, we can't take action at a sufficient scale to have individual impact that is uh, proportionate with the scale of the problem. And that's why we have this way of organising together so that we make, make some things more expensive than others to disincentivize them. We should make using fossil fuels more expensive than using renewables. We should make throwing stuff into the bin more expensive than recycling it and reusing it. We That's should ban what Porsche SUVs, sorry. We should ban, you know, well actually one of the outcomes of the UK climate convention was to, th their rec public recommendation was to ban SUVs and frequent flyers were going to get a special tax as well. So you know, we as a society have this tool of politics and government that is supposed to be about representing and acting for all of our best interests, but it hasn't been doing that for a while. And that's why I think we've all, since before the 70s, even been losing faith in that tool as, as a viable way of making change. But I think we can 
recapture it and redirect it by using the energy of some of those youth movements and their tools and their techniques. But I do think we've, we would do really well to use the tools of politics and government because it's an existing structure that we have that can be turned to a more positive social outcome. Um, I'm, you know, I, I think we just need to redo the way that we re-engage with it. Excellent. <laughs> On that note, can I please ask you all to put your hands together for James Bradley, Jess Scully and Sean Williams for what I'm sure you found was a fascinating um, discussion. We have something completely different for you coming up. So I'm going to ask this, these wonderful people to go over and sign Always. some books. Yeah, <laughs> Get off my stage and um, we are going to have Will Kostakis uh, joining us. And Will is a middle grade YA author um, direct from Sydney. Look forward to joining you here on the stage again. <laughs>